Well, good morning, Life Church. I will promise you two things. One, I'm going to open the word. And two, I will not be as entertaining as our Life Kids Disciple Makers. Um, they do a great job. I just want to say thank you to Miss Christine and this week Miss Katie for bringing the word to our Life Kids. Kids, we're glad that you're in the room with us. And as we open the word of God this morning with your parents, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And we would just ask that you jump in there with us. I'm in the ESV. My name is Matt Perez. If you don't know me, I am one of the pastors on staff, one of the elders here at the church, which means I have the joy and privilege of not only calling Life Church my home, but also working here with some great staff, as our intern Hunter had shared earlier. Now, normally you see Pastor James during this spot, and for the next couple of weeks, you're not. Everything's fine. And as you know, if you joined us here in January when he joined us on staff, he had a home in Nebraska. They're getting things kind of squared away there and getting uh, their items moved this way. So for the next couple of weeks, you may see a couple different faces up here to help James and his family get established and get a little bit of a breather. And the beautiful thing is, whether it's James, myself, Colin, or somebody else, the Word of God is what is central no matter who is up here speaking, and we're excited about that. So we're in Ecclesiastes 4 this morning, and we pray that our time together will be honoring to God. Um, before we spend time in the Word, let's just let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to open your word together, to worship together in song and prayer and the study of your word. We thank you that we have the ability to see scripture in our language through the faithfulness of those who preserved it and translated it through the generations. And we pray now that regardless of who is standing in this spot speaking, that we would humbly come under the word of God to teach the truths that are there, and that your word would shape and mold us not only as individuals, but as a church and in our family units as well. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. I have a daughter that for some unknown reason, I'm not quite sure why, she's a huge Dolly Parton fan. Now, I only know like three things about Dolly Parton. Well, I know four. One is, if you make fun of Dolly Parton, you will experience her wrath. She will defend him as if I would defend Michael Jordan in a debate about basketball players, right? And my brother, her uncle Sean, learned this the hard way one day when she was teasing uh, Dolly Parton in a text string, and he got the full wrath of my daughter, lovingly. But here are the three things I know about Dolly Parton. Number one, I, I know she has a theme park. I think it's in Tennessee, after that, I don't know much about it, and I'm going to just say this after the service. I don't care to know much more about it. It's okay. If you have it, you like going to it, enjoy it. No, okay, fine. I know she was in the movie Steel Magnolias. Now, before you judge me, I have two daughters and a son. And sometimes we watch Steel Magnolias. Sometimes we watch Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I only know one song that she sings. It's the same title of the movie she was in, and that was 9 to 5. Now, I love music. I love to sing music. I don't love to sing it publicly because I'm awful at it. But I love the poetry of music. I love the emotion behind music. I love to think about what were they feeling or thinking when they wrote that piece of music. The lyrics of 9 to 5 speak of a woman who is plugging away at her job caught up in what we would call the rat race. Now, to spare you, I'm not singing these lyrics. 
But I'm just going to read some of what she writes in the song. This is a, a woman who is working her job trying to just make her way in the world. And this is what she writes. I'm working nine to five. Some of you are going to start singing in your head. I know it. What a way to make a living. Barely getting by. It's all talking and no giving. They just use your mind and they never give you credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Nine to five for service and devotion. You would think I would deserve a fat promotion. Want to move ahead, but the boss won't seem to let me. I swear sometimes that man is out to get me. They let you dream just to watch him shatter. You're just a step on the boss man's ladder. But you got dreams he'll never take away. You're in the same boat with a lot of your friends, waiting for the day that your ship will come in. The tide's going to turn. It's going to all roll your way. Working nine to five, what a way to make a living, barely getting by. It's all taking and no giving. They just use your mind and you never get credit. It's enough to drive you crazy if you let it. Nine to five, they got you where they want you. There's a better life and you dream about it, don't you? It's a rich man's game no matter what they call it, and you spend your life putting money in his wallet. The rat race, or the working world as we may call it, you can call it whatever you want, but it feels like if Dolly Parton were to sit down with a preacher of Ecclesiastes, they would both cry out, it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. You work and you slave for others to get ahead, only to get nowhere, and it's just exhausting. How do you navigate the emptiness of toil, as the author of Ecclesiastes will call it, or work? Now, here's the reality about work. I have to work to provide. I'm called to work to glorify God. Even before the fall, Adam was placed in the garden, and he was place there to work it and to glorify God in working it. If you were to skip ahead to Revelation, and we are believers in Christ in eternity with our Father, our Savior, and it says there we will be working. So work is not something that is just drudgery because of the fall. It's been God-ordained and God-given, but between the fall and when Christ returns and calls us home, we live in this world under the sun that's broken, right? And work can be difficult. It can be toil. We don't normally think of work as something given to us by God as a gift to be done for joy and his glory, but Adam was called to work the garden for God's glory. Now, the hard part for us is work in this world, on this earth, under the sun, as the preacher would say, is in a broken world, it's in a cursed world, it's in a fallen world, and it's become, as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, toil. So how do I navigate work in a broken world under the sun? Now this morning, as we continue in our time in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we're going to meet a topic that the preacher will introduce so briefly, and then he's going to jump away from and come back in chapter 5 in a couple weeks when I'm back up here. As the preacher looks for meaning in life under the sun, life on earth, he moves from last week where we saw him struggling, thinking through issues of oppression and injustice, and now he's thinking about things that are plaguing him in terms of work and money and relationships. And he's going to do this to show us and use work and money to show us that there's something better than this in life under the sun, and that's a life marked in relationships. Here's what I want us to be thinking about this morning as we spend time in Ecclesiastes 4. 
We, we need to let God show us the meaninglessness of that which the world says has meaning. So he can put life under the sun in proper perspective. And he's going to do that today through the issues of work and relationships. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 4 through 16. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place, there was no end of all the people, of all whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity, and striving after wind. The word of the Lord. How do we let God show us the meaninglessness of that which the world says has meaning? How do we put life under the sun in proper perspective? It begins in these first couple of verses by us realizing that the chasing of money in the end will leave us feeling empty. Look at verse 4. Then I saw, he's going to start a new topic here. It's a topic of work. He calls that work toil. In a broken world impacted by sin, he describes work as toil. How do we approach work under the sun? How do we view our attitude toward work? He says in verse 4, One option is we can work hard, we can toil hard out of envy, he says in verse 4. We see what our neighbors have, we covet what they have, and sinfully we want the better life. Now, we do a great job of wrapping this up in righteous motives as if we're just trying to get ahead for good reasons. I want to provide a better life for my family. I, I want to earn more to give more away. And, and that may be true for some, but the reality is for many of us, and even in those motives sometimes at the heart of it is, we simply envy what others have, and sinfully we want it. We are a people that are probably more like Ariana Grande than we care to admit when she cries out, I see it. I like it, I want it, I got it. And it doesn't matter how hard I have to work, what I have to do, or who I may have to step on or over to get it, this is what I need to satisfy my soul. And the preacher says, this is vanity, this is worthless. It is like the steam coming up from your 
coffee or hot chocolate or tea in the morning, it's going to be gone and fleeting and leave you empty. It's meaningless. That's one approach to work, he says in verse 4. In verse 5, he says, there's a second approach to work, and he calls it foolish. He says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. On the one hand, you got somebody who is toiling hard to get everything they want to be satisfied. On the other hand, some people say, you know what? I'm just not entering the rat race. I'm going to fold my hands. I'm not going to work. Either through laziness or pride. Better than those people who chase the dollar. He or she refuses to work. I'm not going to do it. This isn't somebody who cannot work. Somebody who will not work. And they fold their hands and they refuse. And the preacher says it will lead to their destruction because they will have nothing to provide. In the end, they will eat or devour themselves because they have nothing. In verse 6, he says better. Now, three times in this passage, you say there's something better. Here's our first one. Better than folding your hands and refusing to work, because we are called to work. Better than using both of your hands to grab as much as you can, whenever you can, however you can, in an envious way that even if it destroys our neighbor is also ungodly. He says, better than both of these approaches, the folding of hands is ungodly, the grabbing with two hands is ungodly. He says, better is to let God fill your one hand with what you need. Be satisfied. A heart that is content with what God has given you and where he has placed you. Now, I remember back in law school, I was talking with one of my friends, and the topic that came up was, how much money do you have to earn before you would feel comfortable leaving law? At the time, I was already considering moving into ministry and leaving law, so I had been thinking about this quite a bit, actually. My friend talked about his thoughts, and he said, well, how about you? How much would you have to earn to leave law? And I very quickly simply said a million dollars. Now, I've left law, and I'm going to say right off the bat, I have not made a million dollars practicing law. In fact... If you were to right now write me a check for $900,000, that's Matt with two T's, I will take it off your hands. If I added that check of $900,000 to all my law earnings, I would still come extremely short of that million-dollar threshold. So please don't sit here thinking, dude raked in a million dollars, that's why I left the law. It didn't happen, all right? But I remember sitting there talking with him, and he said, how much would you have to earn to leave law? I said, a million dollars. A million dollars, and I'd want out. I don't want to do this forever. And then my friend said something I will never forget. He said, you wouldn't leave. You'd make that first million, and you'd want the next. And I sat there listening to him, and I wasn't angry. I was actually fearful he was right. He wasn't even a believer, but he understood that the striving inside our hearts is we're never satisfied, and we always want more. Now, here's the reality. You could put any dollar amount you want in that story. You could put any item you want in that story as if this will now bring you joy, satisfaction, and it won't. You can take the opposite approach say, I'm not playing the game. But the truth is, even if you have very little, you still struggle with, but if I just had this, or just a little bit more, I'd have enough. And the preacher says, it'll leave you still feeling empty. 
We need to let God show us the meaningless of that which the world says has meaning so we can put life under the sun in proper perspective. And what he tells us first off is chasing money in the end to find meaning will leave you feeling empty. And here's why. Because in verses 7 through 12, what he tells us is this. You were not built to be filled by money or stuff. You were hardwired. You were built to be in meaningful relationship. Look at verses 7 through 12. Again, saw vanity under the sun, one who, person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm and but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Preacher says, you want to know what else is vanity? What else is meaningless? What else is a vapor? The person who's running alone. The one who toils hard, like the person he just mentioned here in verse 4, who is toiling in vanity, who is toiling just for self, who, who's eyes are never satisfied, who needs more, and in the end stops and says, who am I doing this for? I got no one to enjoy this with. I got no brother. In his illustration, he says, he's got no child. I'm just running in isolation. and I'm getting everything I want. I have no one to enjoy it with. No one to share it with. It's an empty joy. It's an empty satisfaction. The preacher again says there's something better than this emptiness of loneliness. Now, if you have not really read Ecclesiastes much, there are two passages that everybody knows in Ecclesiastes. One is chapter 3 in the poem on time because, you know, as James said a few weeks ago, some hippies wrote a song about it and thought they wrote great lyrics and all they did was copy the Bible, right? Everybody knows the poem in chapter 3. And everybody knows two are better than one, because you've probably heard it at a wedding. If you know nothing else about Ecclesiastes, you probably know those two parts. He says, better than going alone, better than striving and toiling alone, is to have someone to walk alongside you, to share in your toil, to share in this world. You have, he gives a couple of illustrations. If you fall, you've got somebody to help lift you up. Pity the person who falls and there's no one to help pick them up. They've got to get up on their own. He says, if you lie down, you can keep warm. The body heat of another. Think about the culture in the Middle East, in the desert. At night, deserts get very cold. And he says, how do you keep warm? How do you survive? You have the body heat of another. Unless you're running this world alone and you have no one. He says, if you can get confronted, you might, if you're alone, prevail. If you've got two, you've got better odds. And if you're better than two, is actually three. Two is better than one, and even better than two is three. Now, I want us to step back from Scripture here, and I want us to think big picture for a moment when it comes to us as relational beings. Because the truth is, we are hardwired for relationships. When we read the creation account... When we read in the beginning God speaking into creation, the universe and all that's in it, there is a rhythmic pattern to how creation takes place in Genesis. God speaks, it becomes reality, and he calls it good. 
till Genesis 2.18. For the first time, he says, there's actually something in my creation that is not good. It's not good that man is alone. He built us, hardwired us to be in relationship. Now, in Genesis, this takes place in the form of marriage between Adam and Eve. But this can also take the form of deep godly relationships. So to our single brothers and sisters in Christ, our widow and widower brothers and sisters in Christ, this doesn't mean you're less than if you're not in marriage, right? He's, he's showing us that we are hardwired for relationship. He shows the relationship between Adam and Eve. That is one form of godly relationship. Godly friendships can also be that form. As our intern Hunter talked about earlier in his life group, building those godly friendships. We are hardwired for relationships. The preacher paints the picture here in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 of one who is striving hard to make it in this world and they are left feeling empty. And the reason they're left feeling empty is because they're not hardwired. We are not hardwired to be filled by stuff or money or things. We are hardwired to be filled by relationships. The reason for this is we're made in the image of God. And our God is a triune God, right? He's three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. From before creation, God existed in relationship, in Trinity, in three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, celebrating, rejoicing in relationship. And then this triune God who's been in relationship from, since before the creation of the world says in Genesis 1.26, let us, listen to the pronoun, not let me, but let us make man in our image, in our likeness. We are stamped as humans with the imagio Dei, made in the image of God. That means we are stamped, hardwired to be in relationship just like our triune God has been from the beginning. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And in the garden, we see two relationships, a, a threefold cord almost. God creates man to be in relationship with God. So we have this vertical relationship. He says it's not good for man to be alone, even though he's got that vertical relationship. And he hardwires us to be in a horizontal relationship with other human beings, person to person. The author here in Ecclesiastes, the preacher, says what is vanity, what is meaningless under the sun on this earth is looking for fulfillment in the things of this world that will never ultimately satisfy us. They will leave us empty because you are hardwired, built to be in relationships. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 22, 37 through 39, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. You are hardwired to love God and to love your neighbor. What does this look like? Well, your love for God begins with reconciliation with the Father through the Son at the cross, right? Our relationship with the Father has been strained by our sin, by our indwelling uh, desire to be our own ruler and to buck against the rules and the way that God has made us and actually what we're bucking against is the relationship he calls us into when we break those rules. So our life begins in a relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ who lives in perfect obedience to the Father and goes to the Son to pay the penalty for our sins. If that's something that you're unfamiliar with, I would love to talk with you. Other staff would love to talk to you about what it means to be 
in relationship with God through Christ. And there, when we come into relationship with God through Christ, we are marked by a life that looks to move in obedience and joy because we are actually invited in to the fellowship and love of this triune God that has existed since before creation. And here's the thing about this triune God that has been in love and community amongst himself since before creation, right? His love has been pushing outward, not bent in, right? He doesn't have a bent in type of love, this triune God. The father is not saying, I want all the glory, while he's fighting with the son who's saying, no, I want the glory, while the Holy Spirit is saying, no, 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 this is about me. That's not what scripture shows us. If you were to dive into scripture, what you see is this. The father's saying, let me show you why the Son is so glorious. And the Son says, let me do this to the glory of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is saying, let me bear witness to the glory and beauty of the Father and the Son. The triune God in its loving relationship is pushing outward, not bent in on self. And this is important because when we're invited into this relationship with God, we're called to not have love that is bent in toward self, but we're made in the image of God. We're called to push that love outward toward God and toward others. That's the exact opposite of what this world calls us to do. The world calls us to have relationships that are marked by self-love, bent inwards. It's about my rights. It's about my desires. It's about my pleasures. God says, no, I invited you in to a relationship just like the triune God, not bent in on itself, but pushing out, bearing witness, glorifying joyfully the other. Let love flow out of you in your relationship with God, with your neighbor. Now, what does that look like in this season of just chaos and craziness, right? I mean, what does neighbor love look like Now, we're in this season of just national tension, national uncertainty, and national hostility. And whether you're in this room or joining us on the live stream in this county or across the states, in our context that we find ourselves in, we even have local tension, local uncertainty, local hostility. How do I love my neighbor well during this season? It can take many forms. How do I reach out to my neighbor who's hurting during this season of COVID that seems like, I'll just say it, like, is this ever going to end? Right? And at this point, if your house is like mine, the issue isn't about finances. For some, it can be, right? This can be a financial burden on some. What about the mental toll it's taken on your family? The emotional toll, the spiritual toll. It's a season where a lot of people are hurting, not just financially, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And during the season of COVID, we can do one of two things. We could have bent in love. Is this about me? Or we can mirror the love of the triune God and say, how can I love and glorify God the way I'm loving and looking out for those around me? What does neighbor love look like in this time of racial tension? Right? Because bent in love, let's just be honest, bent in love has been a lot of, that's not been my experience, so I'm going to discount it or act like it's not true, or that's really not that bad. Instead of taking this 
approach that's not bent in about self and saying, hey, let me listen, let me learn, let me love, and hear about experiences of those whose shoes I haven't had to walk in, whose experiences may have been different simply because of their skin tone or color or ethnicity. What is that going to look like for you? But I would say this, during the season of COVID and racial tension, right? I'm not going to mention the murder hornets. I think they're off, right? We're done with those, right? I mean, we just got craziness going on around us, right? More important than what you do is how you do it. And I would encourage you, if you're a note taker, just to write down Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And this week, spend some time there, or today, spend some time there. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he says, look, when you move amongst each other, do it in humility, not out of selfishness. He says, basically, your love for each other shouldn't be bent in, it should be pushing out. And then he says, and here's the example. Jesus Christ. Who looked outside of his self-interest for the glory of the Father. Christ wasn't on a power grab, but he humbled himself and clothed himself in humility for, humility for the glory of the Father. And what did the Father do in return? He raised the Son from death and seats him at the right hand to glorify him. Love that's not bent in but pushed out in the triune God. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to it. Great. So I will do this. I will look to be neighbor love. We go back to our text, and as you do so, let me just say this. Two are better than one. Three are better than two. You want a neighbor love on your own, or are you going to partner with other believers in Christ? If you want a neighbor love, no matter what it looks like, you, you fill in the blank. Adoption? Fostering? Rowan Helping Ministries? Racial reconciliation? Evangelizing? Acts of service to your neighbor? You, you fill in the blank however you feel called right now to neighbor love. But recognize this, you're not called to do it in isolation. You are a relational being made in the image of God who is a relational being. Two are better than one. How can you partner with other believers in your church or outside of your church to neighbor love during this season? Don't try to solve the problem alone. Two are better than one and three is better than two. You take your passions, your desires, and you're in relationship to impact your surroundings for the Father and you partner with others around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, to move for His glory. You want to let God show you the meaninglessness of that which the world says has meaning and put life under the sun in proper perspective. He says this in these passages, you are not wired to chase after money or things. It will leave you feeling empty. You are built like our triune God. You are built to be in meaningful relationship. And Then in the verses 13 through 16, he gives an illustration he says, listen, he comes back to toil. If you want to find toil, meaning in toil, it's not going to satisfy you because in the end, even those who lead are forgotten. Look at verses 13 through 16 of this illustration he gives us as we close out. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born 
though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. The preacher closes his section by combining these two things. He says, look, look, you've got one who has everything, the king. He's, he's got everything he wants. Takes advice from no one. He's void of relationships. He's got everything yet nothing. Is this better than that? Is the poor youth who seeks wisdom. The impression you're given is this older king wanting nobody around him, going it alone. And he contrasts that with this young man who surrounds himself with wisdom, with others to allow them to speak into his life. And the preacher gives an illustration of this young and poor who goes from nothing to the throne. It, it almost reads like Joseph in the book of Genesis. The first time I was reading this, I was like, man, this feels like the Joseph story, even though he's not naming Joseph. Think about it for a second. He talks about this young, poor guy who goes from nothing to the throne. Joseph, in the book of Genesis, is beaten and sold into slavery by his brothers, sent down to Egypt, where he is purchased as a slave. He's then falsely accused and unjust accusation because he's a foreigner, he's an outsider. Racism even back then, right? And he's thrown in jail unjustly. By God's providence, he moves him from the jail into the king's court where he has time with the king and he becomes second in the command to the Pharaoh. He doesn't name Joseph specifically, but it reads much like his life. In verse 15, he says, this youth went from like nothing to standing in the king's place. Joseph went from nothing to everyone in Egypt was under him except for the Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh simply said, do what he says. He says in verse 16, there was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. People were coming from all over Egypt. Joseph's brothers from days' journey away even come to him looking for help, looking for protection. Yet in the end, there's one who will take his place. And those who come after him, even Joseph, are going to forget him. The reason I say it reads like Joseph is you get to the end of Genesis and Joseph dies. The next book is Exodus, and you're not like, but like 10, 15 verses in. It says simply this. Then a king arose in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. Dude, it was like the wealthiest man in the Middle East next to the Pharaoh. People were coming from all over, and a couple generations go by, and a king comes to the throne and says, I got no idea who this clown is. Didn't matter. Preacher says it's all vanity. Striving after the wind, it's meaningless. Paints the picture of a young man who goes from nothing to everything, who strives to know wisdom, a theme that the preacher will bring up in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and chapter 7. He has this teachable spirit. He's, people come to him. He surrounds himself with people to speak into his life. And in the end, that man is forgotten. No matter how powerful and well-known he was under the sun, he was forgotten. It's as if the preacher says, look, let me give you an example of a guy who does everything right under the sun, and in the end, his life, his rule was still meaningless. It was still a vapor. It was still that steam rising from your coffee. He reigned, he was well-known, and he disappeared just like that. And yet, while this sounds a lot like Joseph, it also sounds like another king, one who has not been forgotten, one who for the glory of the Father became poor, 
humbled himself and took on flesh. Was born poor and placed in a feeding trough for animals at his birth. Took our shame and bled at the cross for the glory of the Father. And now, as Philippians 2 tells us, is seated at the right hand of the Father. Reigning in glory. Earthly kings, they come and go. And they're quickly forgotten. Don't believe me? Ask the average person to name half the U.S. presidents. Just half. Bet you most can't. And even if you could name them, even if you could name them all, you probably can't tell me much about them. I try to name half, and in the mix of it, I think I named a baseball player. It's like, wait, I think that dude pitched. He didn't president. Earthly kings, they come and go. These were the most powerful men in our country at one time. And within a few generations, most of us can't even name half of them. They're gone, just like that. Earthly kings come and go. There's one who reigns eternal, and Philippians tells us one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And it will be at that moment that many people to their shame, even believers, will realize that they gave their life in succeeding in nothingness. Because you chased things that didn't matter. Kings come and go, kingdoms rise and fall. The wealthy today won't even be remembered tomorrow. If those who chased after had everything they wanted and they still came up empty in the end, vanity for their toil, how much more do we come up empty when we toil in vain under the sun in a life apart from Christ. Let God continue to shape your soul, your heart, your mind individually as a family and as a church to show you and us the meaninglessness of that which the world says has meaning and in its place let him show you the unending value beyond life under the sun found in the king who reigns eternally and will not be forgotten, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together, open your word, and learn from the wisdom of one who has seen it all. Lord, the, the, the beauty, the pain, the irony, the head-scratching of reading Ecclesiastes is this was a man who lacked nothing as he shares in his life experiences. Yet he comes up empty in the end, time and time and time again. Lord, we were hardwired from our birth to be in relationship. We thank you for the glory of the triune God that we worship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship from the beginning. And Lord, when you make us in your image, that includes this aspect of being made to be in relation. Lord, may we find meaning in this broken world and a life rooted in you. And Lord, in you, in life, with the Father, through the Son, sealed by the Holy Spirit, may we be men and women, may we be a church that is known not for bent in love on self like the rest of this world. May we be marked 
as people who push outwardly for the glory of the Father. Lord, may we be a church that as Paul says in Corinthians, when a non-believer walks in, they can simply cry out, surely God is in this place. Not because we are grand, but because we come under the glory and honor of the Father and look to live for Him. Lord, this week, we pray that you would help move us together in our neighbor love during this time of just chaos and confusion. Pray this in your son's glorious name.